Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brujic, and I'm joined with Dr. John Gellies, where we're going to be talking about catching the early keratoconic cornea on the OI show. John, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here. You are one that has um, really hit the optometric main stage very, very quickly. Um, and I, I still remember the first time I saw you lecture, truly impressed um, with, especially with your with the amount of time that you've been graduated and the experience that you have and the things that you're working on too. So uh, share, share with the audience a little bit more about your practice and kind of what you're involved in um, before we start kind of jumping into the substance of the discussion today. Awesome. Thank you, Mila. I really appreciate, you know, giving me the opportunity to be here. Yeah. The, uh, you know, our practice here, we're a tertiary cornea center. We're in Teaneck, New Jersey at the Cornea and Laser Eye Institute, the CLEI Center for Keratoconus. And, uh, you know, we just do all things cornea from, you know, refractive surgery, corneal disease, uh, really heavy subspecialty interest in keratoconus and, uh, you know, obviously with me, specialty contact lens. So, yeah, uh, that's that's great, John. And from what I understand, too, um, you're, you're with three ophthalmologists and you're really their, 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 their cornea specialty lens guy, correct? I mean, you're really kind of working with these more advanced anterior seg disease patients and, and making sure that they can function and see. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. You know, the the vast majority of what I'm doing is, uh, you know, irregular corneas and severe ocular surface disease. Uh, you know, I've been blessed to work with uh, Peter Hirsch and Stephen Greenstein and uh, David Chu, uh, two, you know, really top-notch cornea refractive guys uh, known for uh, work in, uh, in, you know, development of refractive surgery and yeah. treatment of uh, keratoconus. And then uh, David Chu, who's a uh, cornea and ocular immunology specialist, who's just uh, just out of this world. So we get all the uh, the train wrecks from uh, all sides, and it's it's just a blast working here. Got to tell you. <laughs> and John, it's it's great that you've kind of really taken on this this challenge because it's people like yourself that are working with these individuals that are that are improving their life. With with that said, John, I mean you are you're you're so far ahead in terms of the technology curve. I want to pick your brain on two big topics when it comes to cornea, and the first is um, I want to dive right into it, keratoconus, but I want to go into something very very specific. See, you know, I graduated in two thousand and two, and when we graduated, um, it was kind of a fairly well known uh, number that keratoconus happens in about one in two thousand patients, and what we know is that's totally changed. Those numbers are totally different because the way that we diagnose these individuals has completely changed. Um, I guess, really, what's that number look like today? And how can we in primary care settings really get better at identifying these individuals in order to get them the treatment they need uh, sooner? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's, it's such an important point on it. You know, keratoconus being kind of a passion for, for us and having the uh, the subspecialty center and doing the research in the area, you know, when you look at that number one in 2000, that's really derived from, you know, Olmstead County data from, uh, you know, gosh, I want to say it was 1935 up to like 1982. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's done with using classical instrumentation, you know, the sort of stuff you'd have in your lane. Whereas now those numbers are more like, you know, uh, well, if you look at like Hashimi's uh, paper that was published uh, late last year, uh, it was a meta-analysis on uh, prevalence and, uh, and incidents. And, you know, we were seeing numbers that were somewhere around one in 700 based on the newer data. And then if you go to the, you know, the smaller cohorts, 
you know, there's a registry data out of the Netherlands that says one in 375. You got studies coming from Zealand and like, uh, you know, and Australia that are showing numbers like, you know, one in 191 or one in actually 82. So, you know, you have these numbers that are showing you that it's just extremely, uh, just way more common. Yeah. And the big yeah. difference between it is, you know, the ability to have these advanced levels of testing these days where you can, you know, catch subtle signs of it that you wouldn't have been able to, con- uh, to catch otherwise. So, John, what are some of those technologies that you feel like, you know, the, the, these are the ones that are going to catch it at the earliest levels? Because, again, I think with any condition, and I think part of the reason, too, that we and I care just we really kind of saw these low prevalence numbers was because we knew that when we saw it, we couldn't really do much. We tried to correct it with specialty lenses, but then, but then what we would do is we would just kind of fix it with specialty lenses until they required, or if they eventually needed a penetrating keratoplasty, and that would be the treatment of choice. But now we have ways to intervene sooner. So I, I just personally think it's, it's more important for us to catch these patients sooner. So what are those technologies that you see as, really instrumental to catching and finding these people sooner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many technologies and like, if we, if we just use them in a way where we, we pay attention to the data that's coming out of them, you know, many of these technologies are already in your practice, right? Uh, The big one that I'm, you know, hugely pro on is, uh, you know, any sort of tomography, whether that comes from a shine plug camera or uh, from an OCT, you know, an anterior segment OCT. And, uh, you know, the ability to look at, you know, anterior surface elevation, posterior surface elevation and uh, and corneal, you know, global corneal thickness um, is extremely important to the diagnosis of the disease. And then when you go specifically to OCT, um, you can look at, you know, layer thickness of the cornea um, and specifically the epithelial layer thickness. Um, which in, uh, you know, keratoconus is going to create kind of a donut pattern. You're going to have this epithelial thinning of the apex and heaping around the base of it. Um, it's a, it, you know, these technologies are just, you can catch things so, so early. And many of us have corneal uh, or rather posterior segment OCTs that have an anterior segment function on them. Um, and just using that to be able to screen these sorts of corneas where, you know, things are a little irregular. Now that the disconnect though, is, you know, when do you, when do you use these devices, right? Like it's one thing for me to say, you have a tomographer, use it on everybody. That's, that's just not realistic. So, you know, it kind of comes down to, you know, what, what are the signs that should trigger you to say, oh, I should get a corneal topography at very least on this individual, you know? Um, Cause like right now, if we look at like tomography, for instance, um, you know, very few, uh, optometrists have, uh, corneal tomography available to them. So, you know, knowing when to say, okay, well, th- this is suspicious is, is the, uh, the big key on a lot of this. Hmm. So, so what are some of those things that we would see in our practice? So let's say, for example, somebody doesn't have advanced technologies, or even if they do have them, what are those key trigger points where you're like, this should, this should kind of warrant some further investigation from me clinically to kind of rule this out or understand the cornea better? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot that like in just your bread and butter uh, exam, 
that should trigger that sort of thought process. You know, we could go through the classic sort of stuff, which is, you know, a K value on uh, on your auto Ks of greater than 48. Um, or if we're looking at, you know, an auto refractor, getting an error on your auto refractor should tell you that there's something, you know, irregular about that, uh, that surface having big asymmetries between the eyes and the amount of, you know, myopia or the amount of uh, astigmatism that's present. Um, specifically, though, the one that, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about, we just submitted a paper on this where we did a, a meta-analysis, or not a meta-analysis, an analysis of about uh, retrospective analysis on about 1,200 uh, eyes of keratoconic patients of various different uh, degrees. And what we looked at was their refractive data, their manifest refractions, and we looked at the autokeratometry and we related that back to the Penicam scans that we had uh, looking at the K-max and IS ratios and all those sorts of factors. And what we found was actually very, very striking. Um, about 80% of individuals with keratoconus in the entire cohort had oblique or against the rule stigmatism, uh, regardless of what age they were. Um, when we took a look at the, uh, the amount of, uh, of uh, myopia, if we looked at like the Amsler Krumek that always yeah. said, you know, like this thing was established in 1946, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very outdated scale. But when you look at it, there are some classical things on it that are, you know, that it's helping you grade with that are just basically based on an, a normal examination, right? You know, you have your, you know, your K values, or your manifest refraction, yeah. slip lamp findings, right? Um, one of those things is like progressing amounts of myopia that like basically starts at time five mm -hmm. looked at the entire group, like the entire group didn't ever get to minus five, whether it was like, you know, uh, just the sphere value, just the cylinder value or, or a, uh, spherical equivalent. So, you know, there's a lot less myopia than, uh, than you would think. Like when we were looking at the numbers, it was like 40% of these guys or hyperopic or emetropic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. You know, we saw a lot of uh, astigmatism. So when we looked at the averages that were really important on this, it was against the rule or oblique astigmatism in either your refraction or your uh, K values um, and a uh, corneal or refractive cylinder of, uh, <laughs> of minus two diopters, right? So if we had anything in that, that was actually a good indicator that we should be able to, or we should uh, go ahead and get a, a corneal topographer or a topography and work that patient up for a, a corneal malady. Um, it's very interesting. It, it is interesting, John, because, you know, the things that you bring up are, and, and we're all learning, we're we in the learning phase right now. So as you're kind of collecting this data and we kind of communicate and talk about it, it's so true even with what we're seeing now with our more advanced technologies, because again, these patients with traditional technologies would have been missed until they got to phases that were so severe that you're now questioning and saying, well, we now have to do something. And, and it almost seems like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but we as a profession have kind of dropped our diagnostic barrier um, to a point where we're now starting to become suspicious earlier because we realize you don't have to have the high myopia with keratoconus. You can have, you can be hyperopic and have keratoconus. You can be emetropic with cylinder and have keratoconus. So, so again, all of these kind of classic rules that we were always fed with the traditional technologies um, have totally changed over the last decade. And 
and it's cool that I'm talking to one of the guys that are actually making those changes happen. John, I, I have to touch base with you on this as well, too. So, so there's another big change that's really kind of coming now within eye care, and that is a more personalized medicine and genetics. And there's actually tests now that give us the ability to determine or detect somebody's level of risk of having the genetic um, predisposition towards keratoconus. Give me your thoughts. Give me your opinions. Where does this really play a role in our practices and 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 for the longevity of the patient's well-being, essentially? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 I got to credit you on this because I think you said it the best that I've ever heard, which is that, you know, there is an environmental factor in an individual's life that is going to help impact the disease that they have, right? And then you have the genetic factor. Now, previously, we couldn't, we didn't know about the genetics, right? We could say that your family history was X, so we think that you're going to have a higher risk, but we couldn't know that from an objective standpoint, right? Well, now that we have the ability to do these genetic tests, we're going to be in a position where we can say objectively, you have these markers, which are part of the association for, uh, for keratoconus in this case. And we can now use a polygenic risk score where we're taking all those factors from all those genes and creating a risk scale and saying, look, based on the, uh, the genetics, you have the propensity for a high risk of development of keratoconus. So for patients who, let's say, you know, I have a ton of patients every day and, and you do too, that come in that have keratoconus and ask, you know, I, I have a, a son or daughter and, uh, you know, they are, you know, uh, eight years old. I, I want to know if they're, if they have keratoconus or if they are going to develop keratoconus. And if we were to screen that individual at that time, and we had a very regular cornea and we were to get a genetic test at that point, our, our, uh, management of that patient may change, right? So if I saw somebody with a normal cornea prior to having that test, Many individuals would have said, oh, you know what, maybe I'll see you back in, uh, in six to 12 months. You know, everything looks nice and normal. But if that individual had that normal corneal shape, but let's say their genetic testing came back with a high risk for development of keratoconus. In my mind, what would happen then is I would treat that like a high risk of progression in glaucoma. I'd say, oh, this individual has high risk factors. I'm going to follow up with them in three months instead of six to 12 and see this individual so that I can monitor for those changes. And the second they have any sort of change, I basically lower my threshold on what I would classify as a progressive movement in this individual. And maybe we might get to the point where, uh, you know, uh, it's recognized that high risk is just a reason to go and have this. Um, but what we would do is, you know, we refer them for corneal collagen processing at that point. Um, but it, it really affects your management, right? So let's take that individual and let's say that they have no genetic risk marker, right? Um, I would feel a little bit more confident in saying, look, you know, we're still going to watch this on about a three to six month level. Um, but, you know, you don't, you don't need to have that immediate worry for this, right? You can relax a little bit. It may happen. But in the other event where it's a high risk, we may find that individual and say, look, you know, we should have a more serious conversation and have a, you know, a plan together about how we're going to move forward on this. And if this happens, uh, this is how we are going to react to it. 
John, in my fourth year of optometry school, so 20 years ago, I wrote a paper on keratoconus, keratoconus risk, um, understanding the condition, understanding, trying to understand why it occurs in some of these individuals. So I could always describe exactly why it happens, but we didn't have the technologies yet to identify it early or identify those risk factors early enough. And I never thought we would. In my clinical lifetime, I never thought we would be talking about keratoconus the way we are right now in terms of early levels of detection. And you know what, what you've kind of exposed the audience to is just a new way to think about this condition because we have now fortunately good ways to treat it with corneal cross-linking and ways to prevent progression. That's Again, one of the most encouraging things about this condition is we can now do something about it. And we have when we have a solution for it, isn't it so rewarding when you catch these patients early and are able to provide that for them? So so I I I John, I could sit here and talk for hours with you about this. I mean, this is obviously a passion of yours, certainly a passion of mine. Um, we do have some time constraints. John, I do appreciate you being on the on the show here. Really, really appreciate your time. Appreciate everybody being here with us and make sure that you subscribe to our channel and make sure you look at, listen to other podcasts as well too. John, thank you so much. Anyway, thank you. It was a pleasure.